or All right, well, since our first session, they have a new mic for me, which means I can teach with my hands and talk to my hands, which you're, you're in trouble now, because I, I do a lot of that. I was kind of limited when I had to hold a, hold a mic, right? Uh, so, so uh, but, but thank you. I want to thank you for, um, I guess, in, indulging me. It always feels a little self-indulgent, right, to get up and, and, and work through telling something like that, because it's, I, I love doing it so much, and it's so meaningful to me, and so I hope it was a blessing to you as well. Uh, and I got, I got to share w- with some of you um, what, what a deeply meaningful process it can be to try to learn something by heart. Right? And I really think it, it goes a step beyond memorization. Memorization's up here in the head. Right? Uh, but if you, if you can spend enough time with something that it sinks down into your heart, right? and you're making decisions about how you're going to tell it to somebody, right? that you're not just going to recite words, but you're, gonna, you're trying to tell what something means to you, uh, that, that is a huge blessing to you. So that's a huge, it's been a huge blessing to me to be able to spend some time with First Peter. Uh, and try to let it sink into my heart. And so, again, yeah, I thank you for, for the opportunity, and thank you for indulging me as I, as I got to share that with you. Uh, as fun as it is to learn it, the best part is being able to tell it to other people, right? And so, so I enjoyed that opportunity. And I hope, right, that, that being able to hear it as a whole, that you, maybe you notice some things about this letter that you hadn't noticed before, right? That maybe there were some connections that were made or there were some passages that jumped out at you that just had kind of remained, you know, in the background somehow, right? That's been my experience when I've heard something told by somebody is there's just things that I hadn't noticed, right, that now become important or now there's connections being made. So I, I hope that you had that kind of experience as, as you went through. And I'm hoping, right, that hearing it allowed us to let the letter tell us what's going on with the audience, Right, sometimes the way that we do biblical studies, at least in the, the academy, right, where I was trained, is we go read a commentary and let it tell us what's going on with the letter. Then we go read the letter and say, yep, I think that's right. That's backwards. Right? Let's hear the letter and let it tell us right, what, what, what's going on in the lives of the people that it's addressing. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that you heard some things and, and, and you were reflecting some of those things as I asked you to respond uh, to what you heard there. And one of the things that, that came up a couple of times that we, we, we've got to work with as we're thinking about First Peter is that this is written to some people who are suffering in some way. Right? And if we're going to try to figure out what the author is, is saying to them, how the author is encouraging them, then we might need to spend some time thinking, well, what kind of suffering are they experiencing? Right, and that might also help us see, all right, see ourselves in that. Does that reflect our situation in any way so that we can connect some with the message of First uh, Peter? So let's, let's look at a couple of passages that highlight some things that are going on uh, in the life of the audience, things that we just heard. Right? And I think one of the, one of the big ones is in, in chapter 4, verse 12, we get this language of, of a fiery ordeal. Do not be surprised, beloved. Right, when the fiery ordeal comes upon you to test you. We hear that language, fiery ordeal, right? and, and it sounds incredibly intense. Right? That, that's heightened language. Uh, and, and maybe it, it might call to mind right, a kind of suffering for these communities that, that's ending in death for them. Right? That they're being tortured in some way. Or there's something kind of persecutions that we read about happening to Christians. Right? There are stories, of course, about uh, Christians in different parts of the Roman Empire at different times being burned when they refused to deny Jesus, right? And so this kind of language, I think, maybe could, could make us wonder, is that the kind of thing that's happening? Uh, but, but I think as we look at other evidence from the letter, we see that doesn't seem to be the, the main concern for this audience, or the main thing, right, that they're somehow being, being killed for their faith, right? There are other, other writings in the New Testament where maybe that's more in view, right? Uh, something like the book of Revelation mentions that specifically, 
Right? But if we look at the evidence here in First Peter, I think we'll see, by and large, there's some, there's some other things going on. What we hear about often right, is them being reviled or maligned or, or spoken against as evildoers. Right? That's the kind of language. You've got this admonition, when you're reviled, don't revile. Right? That's the example of Jesus. Right? He committed no sin. No deceit came out of his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Right? I think that's speaking to the situation of the audience. Right? They're told, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Right? Or right when they see you, they, they'll malign you when they see that you're changing. So that seems to be the kind of thing that they're experiencing. So we see that in some of the other passages. Right? In, in chapter 2, Right, verses 11 and 12, we see this, this kind of language. Beloved, I urge you, I'm, gonna, I'm reading from the NRSV now, as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. Right, or we get that same kind of language elsewhere in, in chapter 3. Look at verses 13 and following there. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated, but in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned. It's a foregone conclusion. Not if here, right? So, so when this happens... Or because this is happening to you not right now, right? When you experience this kind of thing, right? Those who abuse you for your good conduct are the ones that would be put to shame. Or again, as we've already seen in chapter in uh, chapter four, right? This language of the, the, that they used to participate in certain things with the Gentiles, but now that they are withdrawing, right? The response from these people they used to be a part of, the response is right, that they are now being maligned because of their withdrawal from some of these associations, right? They're surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation, and so they blaspheme. Right, I've got a picture here of, of a Roman temple, because I think that might be one of the settings that we have in mind, right? Why would uh, members of the Christian community, right, members of this Jesus-following community, why would they be reviled or maligned? Right, and we, we have some evidence from, from other historians about Christians being called antisocial and haters of people and, and you know, all, all sorts of labels that were uh, leveled against those who were part of the Christian community. Why, why might that be? Well, part of it could be right, because of their uh, withdrawal from participation in the religious life of the cities that they're a part of. Right, the kind of things that would go on in the temples are, are not only uh, the, the worship of whatever patron deity might be overseeing that city, Right? And that's how Roman religion works. Right? You, you have a patron deity right? that, that, that is the, the, the god of your city, maybe the god of your household even. Right? And, the, and the relationship is we honor this god and care for this god through worship and sacrifice and festivals and prayers. Right? And in return, that god takes care of us. Right? That, that's, that's relationship. Right? And so that, that's, the, that, that's what you're doing when you're, you're engaged in those activities in the temple. Right? Uh, now, for some people... Right? This was more social than it was religious. Right? Not everybody in the Roman world actually believed that those gods were real, right? but they still participated in what, was, what went on in the temples because you know, if your friend has a baby and they're going to throw a baby shower, they're going to do it in the temple. Right? They're going to go there. You're going to offer some sacrifices to the gods. Thank you, gods, for the safe birth of this child. Please bless, bless this child in their first year of life or whatever. Right? And then you're going to take whatever you sacrificed, retire to the fellowship hall. Yeah, they had fellowship halls, right? And you're going to eat what you sacrifice, and it's, it's a celebration. It's a party. Right? And so this social event, 
right? It's kind of layered with these religious overtones of the sacrifices being offered to the gods, right? Birthday parties maybe be the same thing, right? Someone's celebrating your birthday, you go down to the temple, right? And you offer some sacrifices. Thank you, gods, for a, for a healthy year and a prosperous year. Please keep it coming. That's basically what you're saying, right? Keep being good to me, gods, right? Uh, and then you retire to the fellowship hall and celebrate with your friends, right? It's also true that there are temples in, in some of the cities that are named, or in the regions that are named in First Peter, that had temples dedicated to the emperor. So not only do you have gods that you're honoring because they take care of you, you also honor the emperor because the emperor takes care of you. Right? The emperor is a patron, a benefactor who cares for his citizens. And so you go into these places, you offer sacrifices, you celebrate festivals, you have prayers dedicated to the emperor. Right? For the same reasons that you would do those things for a god. In fact, in these places, they start to even use divine language to talk about the emperors. All right? Now, if you are not going to participate in those kinds of things because you have dedicated yourself to the worship of the one God, what's that going to mean for you? Right? Not only might you be thought of as impious, right, that you're no longer participating in the worship of these gods, but maybe even more, even worse, right, you're somebody who says no to bir- you know, baby showers, you're someone who won't go to the birthday parties. You're someone who is withdrawing from this, this kind of life. You're somebody who risks angering the gods right, but not participating. Or you're somebody who is showing yourself to be treasonous but not going and participating in the things that we're doing for the emperor. Right? And so it's those kinds of behaviors, those choices to withdraw that could lead them to be maligned and hated right, and looked down upon. And I think that's the kind of setting that we're supposed to imagine here. Right? There's a total ostracization. They are being pushed out of their society Right, because of some of these decisions, and people are saying uh, these, these things about them that are leaving them feeling shamed. Right? They're grappling with the shame that comes from the reputation that they're earning uh, because of the people right, that they live around. Right? Uh, the, the, the analogy sometimes I think of, right, and I t- I'll talk about with some of my students, right, who, are, who are college freshmen often, is to ask them to imagine their high school days, right, and imagine that they were running with a crowd at some point, and they kind of decided, yeah, these aren't the people I should be hanging out with. Right, so they make a decision. I'm, 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 I'm not going to hang out with them anymore. I'm going to stop going to the places that we go together. I'm going to start trying to live a different way. Right, I ask them if that had happened to you or if you can imagine something like that happening to you, how did those people respond right, that you stopped hanging out with? Right, right, abused you verbally, made fun of you, teased you, ridiculed you. Why? Right, because right, they're, they're hurt by what you did. Right? They're, they're, they're maybe trying to put pressure you into coming back. Right? And I think it's that kind of thing that these communities are experiencing. Right? And in a culture where honor and shame are so important, right, to have that shame piled on you for these decisions uh, would be a, a really uh, um, crushing experience for them. And so that's, that's probably the kind of thing that they're experiencing. And so it's into this situation that the author is speaking right, and trying to address it. Can The temptation here right, is that they will go back. Right? That the pressure will become so great that they'll decide this isn't worth it. Right? That's too much shame. Right? Uh, it, it was better before. Right? And so the author is speaking into that situation saying, don't let go of those promises because of shame you're experiencing in the present. Right? Follow the pattern of Christ who endured shame right? because of what was going to happen on the other side. Right? So, there, so that's, that's the setting, I think, that we need to imagine as we're imagining the author writing to these communities. So how, how does he respond? What kind of advice does he offer to them? Right? One of the things he does, and this is something uh, we'll, we'll spend some more time uh, thinking about together in the sermon tomorrow that I think is a bit surprising, 
is that he calls the community to engage meaningfully in the community that they're a part of. I think one possible response to having that kind of shame heaped on you, right, is just just to go insular as a community, right? Forget all of you guys, right? We're just going to focus on each other, love each other, hunker down, wait for Jesus to come back, right? I think that that could be one possible response to that, that kind of negative uh, uh, maligning and slander coming from the outside. And uh, Peter is very clear, right, to say that's, that's not the way that you need to respond here, right? So again, we'll, we'll think about this some more tomorrow as we look at some of these passages. But what instead he calls them to do is re- stay engaged in your community and the way that you're going to overcome this, you're going to silence them by living such good lives that anybody who says bad things about you will be shamed. Right? That, that's the message he gives them, right? Don't withdraw Instead, engage and do good. Do the kind of good that when anybody starts saying something bad about you, someone else will say, oh, no, I know that person. That's not, that's not true. Now I'm not so sure about you that you would say that kind of thing about them. Right? That, that's a very proactive way that he's calling on them to respond to the kind of suffering that they're experiencing. Right? Invest in your communities but by doing good. Right? I think some of this language of doing good is... is, is more than just kind of moral, ethical behavior. I think he's t- calling them, do the kinds of things, right, that would get you recognized maybe even within your communities. Right, if you pay for a, a road to, to be built, right, or, or an aqueduct to be put in, there's a nice plaque that gets put up with the emperor or magistrate in your city commending you for your good work. Right, well, if that kind of thing, if you're being commended in those kinds of ways within your community, it's a little hard for other people to turn around and malign you. Right, as people who are antisocial or people who are threatening the stability and, 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 and health of the city. Right, so he, I think one of the things that he advocates is this very proactive response to the community that actually sounds like how God's people have lived in exile before. So again, the, 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 the metaphorical world that Peter is creating for his audience, remember, is this language of exile. He's asking them to imagine themselves right, or, th- or think about themselves as exiles, as sojourners. Well, God's people have lived in exile before. Right? We've got that reference to Babylon at the end that's evoking this memory of exile and their experience in exile. Well, how did they survive exile before? Right? We can read something like Jeremiah, right? where Jeremiah is a prophet who is speaking to God's people after they have been taken into Babylon in exile. Right? He spends part of his time warning them it's about to happen, and they ignore him. Then it happens. Right? They're defeated by Babylon and taken off into exile. Then he spends the rest of his time writing to those in exile, offering some encouragement right, that, that God has not abandoned them. And that's where you get, of course, the, the beautiful passage from Jeremiah 29. Right? 29.11 is maybe what most people know. I know the plans I have for you, God says. He's writing, this isn't a letter, to people who are in exile, offering them comfort. I know you feel abandoned, abandoned by God right now, that your God has left you to be taken off into exile, ripped out of your land while you watch the temple being destroyed. But you're not abandoned. Right? God has a plan for you. Right? But that before we get to 20, verse 11, right, we have other advice to those who are living in exile right, that Jeremiah is writing in, in this letter. And he tells them as he's building up to this reminder that God has not abandoned them, that you need to invest. Right? Let, your, let your kids get married and have kids. Right? Don't kind of withdraw and go insular. Right? Continue to seek the welfare of the city is a language you get in Jeremiah 29. That's how you're going to survive in exile. Right? So First Peter, I think, is very much in line with how we've seen God's people right, being instructed about how they can survive an exile-like experience before. Right? And that's one of the things that he, uh, that he does in response to their experience. 
Another thing that we see him doing, and I heard some feedback from some of you about this as well, is he's, he's reinforcing for them their, uh, their, their community identity, right? a sense of solidarity, that they're not alone in this experience, that they are together as a community, and he, and he does this by reinf- with some of the language that he uses to talk about them. Right? So we see this language, or we heard this language, right? that they are chosen, that they're called by God, that they're these reborn people. Uh, the, the idea of chosenness echoes, I think, throughout the whole letter. Again, if you're wondering, has, has God abandoned us? That's a pretty fou- powerful reminder. No, you're a community who God has, has chosen. Right? We get this wonderful image of the, the community as a spiritual house, a temple, right? is what's being described in chapter 2, right? made up of these living stones. Right? I think that imagery is meant to reinforce this sense of, of solidarity as a community. Right? We are built together into something stacked on top of one another like stones, right? dependent on one another in those ways. Right? And that, that can offer some comfort and encouragement as they are uh, facing the kind of suffering that they're, they're facing. Right? The author will, will adopt the language of Israel to talk about this community, which again may be reminding them of who they are if we're imagining that the author's writing to primarily a Jewish audience. But if he's writing to a primarily Gentile audience, he's, he's telling them, look, your identity has changed because of, of what uh, God has done with you, right? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, right? A people for God's own possession, right? You get that kind of language really stacked on top of each other right? in chapter 2 as we're talking about, in the same section we're talking about the spiritual house. All of that, I think, is meant to build up their sense of identity. This is who we are. We are a community in solidarity, and that can provide some, some stability and strength and encouragement as we suffer. And then you get repeated throughout as well this call to, to brotherly love. How, how is one of the ways that we're going to survive what we're going through? We're going to take care of each other. Having purified your souls, he tells them, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Or, right, later, above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Right? This point gets driven home a couple times. That makes sense. In a community where maybe they're feeling, kind of wondering, is this worth it? Right? Is it should, should I just give this whole thing up? Right? That, that call to care for one another and love one another is one of the ways they're, they're going to survive, right? what, what, they're, what they're going through. A couple other things we might highlight about, about how the author responds, right, or at least one, one big one, is to, to look at the way he talks about their suffering. Okay, so we've mentioned right, that they, they're, they're suffering, and we get some descriptions of maybe the kind of suffering, and there's lots of references to, to Jesus' suffering. Part of what he's doing is trying to reframe for them how they should understand the experience of suffering. Because right, there's lots of different ways you could explain why you're suffering. And I, I, my guess is they're getting some explanations from other people. Right? Their, their old network of friends, maybe family members who have not come with them into the Christian community, they're, they're telling them why you're suffering. It's because you're being punished by the gods. You made them angry, and this is your punishment. You don't like this? Go back to how things were and make the gods happy again, and your life will be good. Right? There, there's people who are interpreting their suffering for them. Right? And I think Peter wants to say, Let, no, let's, let me give you a way to reframe that. Let's give you another way to think about why it is that you're suffering. And a couple things that he does. One, he, he reminds them about the temporary nature of what they're going through. Right, what you're experiencing is, is just a temporary experience between the two revelations of Jesus Christ. 
Right? And that, that's kind of the big framework, in, I think, in, in Peter's mind. And, and we'll even see some of this in 2 Peter as well. Right? The, there, there was the incarnation, right? Jesus coming into the world, his death, his resurrection. Right? There's that revelation of Jesus, and he will come again. Right? There's going to be a return of Jesus, a second revelation of Jesus. We live in between. Right? But part of what he's encouraging them is that that's a finite time in between. It's a temporary experience. It's not going to go on forever. Right? And you can rest assured and in confidence that the second revelation is indeed coming. And that can be a source of hope. Right? So we've already mentioned the, the importance of hope in First Peter. Right? So part of what he's doing is he's helping them think about their sufferings is to realize it's not going to last forever. Right? It's, it's a temporary condition we experience while we await uh, the, the second revelation of Jesus Christ. And in a sense, for Peter too, the, these two revelations are, are echoes or, or, or uh, uh, connected to two salvations he talks about as well. We don't typically think of salvation in this way. Right? I think we typically think of salvation as like a one-time thing that happens when we're baptized, maybe. Right? Uh, Peter understands there to kind of be two. There is a salvation that is connected with uh, baptism, initiation into the community, conversion. Right? That is a salvation. But there also is a salvation that's out there in the future, right? when they're going to enter into the age to come, when Christ comes back. Right? So he'll talk about that you are being guarded right, in this present time, this, temporary, this time between the revelations. You're being guarded right, for the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. Right? So it's not that they're not saved, right? There's just two salvations he's thinking of, right? So he's kind of situating them between these two revelations, these two salvations, and saying, hang in there, right? That second one, that second revelation, that second salvation, it's going to happen. You can hold on to that. You can trust that, right? That, that can be a source of, of hope for them. Right? Uh, the other thing, right, that he, that he will emphasize as he's talking about their, their suffering, right, is that... Um, the resurrection and revelation of Christ is, is the grounds for that hope in the midst of their suffering. Right, so how, how can we be sure that this kind of thing isn't forever? Well, look what God did with, with Jesus. Right, he has been raised. And that resurrection, right, the fact that he was raised after his suffering, is proof, right, grounds that your hope is not unfounded. That's, that's the kind of God that you can put your hope in because look what he's done with Jesus. So he emphasizes that and as we've talked about then, talks about how God is going to be the one who's going to protect them in this, this temporary time between the two revelations. Okay, so that's one way he's trying to help them reframe their suffering. Right, another big thing I think that we see Peter doing right, as he's trying to help them reinterpret their suffering is to encourage them to think of it as actually an opportunity, right, as a refining of their faith. So you get some language in 1 Peter, right, right in chapter 1, about the kind of refining fire. Right, so he, he's telling them, right, yeah, I know you, know, you, might, have, you might be suffering right, uh, uh, certain kind of trials in the present right, for, for a short time. Right, but it's so that the steadfast of your faith might be tested. And then he refers to this other kind of testing, right, that gold, like gold that is tested in a fire. Right, even though it perishes, right? So gold's a kind of perishable thing, but it can be tested in a fire and, and shown to be pure and true, right? And he says, that's the same kind of thing that's happening with you. That's the way to understand your faith. This is not punishment from the gods, right? This is your father, your loving father, refining your faith so that it is something that's strong and stable right, and firm. And that's another way to kind of frame that experience, right? Rather than a kind of punishment, but an opportunity for refining. This, I think, is what the author is talking about when he comes back uh, in chapter 4 and talks about the fiery ordeal 
Right? I think that the language of the fiery ordeal that's coming upon them is a, is a, is a recollection of the refining fire that he talks about in, in chapter 1. Right? So, it's, so it's, it's not speaking to that they're actually being burned up or something. Right? I think what he's speaking to is yeah, you, you are going through this, this refiner's fire. Uh, and, th- and the way that works, of course, is that as you put a metal into this kind of fire, the, the intense heat will separate out the dross, right, the impurities, so that you can clear those away. That's what a refining fire does. And Peter's saying, that's what's happening with your faith. Right? The, the intense uh, shame and suffering that you're going through is going to draw that dross out so that it can be done away with. And what's left right, is the steadfast faith that you need. Right? So, it, so it's an opportunity for this, this ref, refining. And in that way, it's something that can be rejoiced in right? rather than lamented. And then the, the last thing I think that he, that he emphasizes as he's trying to help them reinterpret their suffering is something we have talked about as well. He wants them to remember that you're, you're not going through this alone. Okay? Not only do you have one another right, that you're suffering with, but your suffering is something that is shared with Christ. Right? He has suffered before you. Your following him means that you might also suffer as well. Right? And so when you're suffering, you have some consolation in that. I'm not doing something wrong because this is what happened to Christ. And if I'm going to follow him, I can expect that same thing to happen to me. Right? If Christ therefore suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same intent. You can expect this to happen to you. Right? So that, that's some consolation. Right? And then as I'm going through that suffering... Right? Not only am I consoled knowing I, I, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be if I'm following Jesus, but I also know Jesus has already gone through this before me. He's gone through suffering before. This is not right? And that, I think, can be a powerful reminder and offer some consolation uh, as they're, they're going through this experience. Right? And the other thing, right, as, as part of this, as, as he's appealing to the pattern of, of Jesus and reminding us that Christ also suffered, right, is he's showing us that for Jesus... Uh, that, that suffering, that self-emptying, right, was also his exaltation. He is doing what God sent him to do when he does that. Now, I think we, we want to come back to some ideas that we talked about before. It's not the suffering per se that's the most important thing here. Right? It's that, 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 that Christ, um, in the way that he carries himself in the world, is able to fully trust God uh, by emptying himself Right, in vulnerability and love to everybody encounters. Right, and I think that's the picture we get uh, as, as uh, the author holds up Christ as, as an example for the slaves at the end of chapter 2. Right, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Right, he doesn't, even as he's hurt, he doesn't, he doesn't in a kind of knee-jerk reaction way strike back. Instead, he, he maintains this posture of open vulnerable, self-giving love. And it means he just keeps getting hurt. Right? But by doing that, he is revealing who God is. He is, he, is, he is living into what God sent him to do. It is his exaltation as he is emptying himself. Right? It is the kind of flourishing life that God intends for his creatures. Right? God created humans to live in those kinds of relationships with one another where they are emptying uh, themselves into one another in self-giving love. Right? And as Christ is suffering, he, he's doing that, right? And so I think there, there's some encouragement. As you're suffering, right, it, it may be that you're doing exactly right, what God has called you to do. It, it might be, in some ways, right, a, a living into the, the kind of flourishing life that God intends for his, his creatures and right, for all that he has made. And so, again, I, as, he's, as he's working through and as you're reading through First Peter and thinking about First Peter in the coming months, 
Right? I think this is something to be, keep, keep, keep in the back of your mind. Right? How is the author addressing the kind of suffering that they're experiencing? How is he helping them reframe that and think about that? How is he offering consolation or encouragement right, to hang on and, re- and maintain hope during that experience? Right? And, and then as you're doing so, right, I think for, uh, the other thing is to reflect on, and, and where, where do we need to hear that message ourselves? Our situation is not the same as the communities that Peter's writing to. At least not exactly. And so I think it's helpful for us to reflect some on, on that. Right? How, in what ways are we like and unlike right, the, audience that, the audiences that Peter's writing to? And be honest about the ways we're not like them. Right? Our experience uh, under our current government is not like their experience under the Roman Empire. There's some big differences there. But that doesn't mean it's completely different, right? There are some places maybe where we experience suffering of different kinds. Where you experience some of the shame or ostracization or marginalization right, that these communities are experiencing. Right? And, 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 and as much as we experience those things, then maybe we can see some ways that First Peter can speak in some pretty powerful ways to us. Where we need those reminders about the hope that is assured right, at the second revelation. Where we need to have reminders about how to think about the, the suffering that we're experiencing. Right? And so I want to encourage you to keep this question in mind as you're going through First Peter. What are the ways that, that our community is like or unlike those that First Peter is written to. Right? And, and, of course, then that leads us into right, the big question, maybe to keep in mind, then how does that help us think about what it is that First Peter might have to say to this community? Because right? as much as I think it helps for us to be thinking about how First Peter spoke to the original communities that received it, it also has the power to speak to our community. Right? And so thinking through ways that we are like or unlike those audiences and then be, un- be able to reflect on then what, what First Peter has to say to us can be one of the ways that we can, we can work through that. All right, w- with the, the time that we, we have left here in the second session, I, I want to spend some time thinking about um, spiritual formation in First Peter. So we've just been giving kind of a big picture of some of the main themes and, and some of the things I think the author in an overarching way is trying to do. But I want to dig in. Uh, to some, some thoughts about how the author imagines spiritual formation taking place in the lives of the communities that he's writing to. Right? Because yes, he wants to encourage them. Yes, he wants to build them up. But I think he's also seeking their, their ongoing spiritual formation to be formed more and more into the image of Christ. And how does he imagine that that's going to take place for these audiences? Right? And if we can maybe think through that, then that, those are going to also be some questions we could ask for ourselves. Or what are ways right, that we could be encouraging formation, spiritual formation in our own communities? So if we're thinking about spiritual formation, I think we've got to get a couple terms or ideas in mind. Right? If, we're, if we're thinking about how people are formed spiritually, I think there's two guiding questions that we want to have in mind. One, what, what are we being formed into? Right? Where are we going? What's the end goal here? What's the purpose or what's the telos? What's that end result? Right? That's one thing. Right? And then the other question is the question of, all right, how are we going to get there? What's the means? What's the mechanism that's going to take us from where we are now to this end goal that we want to go to? Okay, so as I'm thinking about spiritual formation, those are two questions I've got in mind. What's the end goal, and how are we going to get there? Both of those are important. I need to know where we're going. But even if I know where we're going, how am I going to get there? Right, and maybe these are questions that, that, that drive me because I have had it reminded for me so many times in my life how hard it is to change. And how hard it is to be formed in new ways. And so I'm really curious about how the author imagines and hopes that's going to happen for his community. And wonder, is that something that, that can happen in our communities as well? So, so where are we going, right, and, and how do we get there? Uh, I think we get some information about the telos, or purpose, 
right, of spiritual formation right at the very beginning. There's a, there's a beautifully crafted opening, I think, to 1 Peter in chapter 1, verse 2, where, where the author will lay out for us the grounds of our status as God's people. That is, what, why are we God's people? What's, what's the foundation of that? Right, the, the how, the means, how is it that we live into that or become God's elect people? And then to what end? Right, what's the purpose of us being the elect, right? And so we're getting that language of where are we going and, and how do we get there, right? And so you have, you have uh, if you look at the opening of First Peter, you get this, this language, right? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen right, according to the foreknowledge of God, right? So their election, their chosenness is grounded in God's foreknowledge. This is something God has known about and intended from the very beginning. So there's a firm grounding to their status as God's elect people. That's nothing, in other words, that they have done for themselves. That's a pretty consistent message, I think, for both First and Second Peter. Yes, they are intended to grow. Right? They're going to have to grow into their status as the elect. But never forget, right, it's grounded in what God has done. He, it's his foreknowledge, right? That's the grounding for what's going on, right? And they are chosen, right? They are elect not only because of the foreknowledge of God, but by means of, right, by the Spirit, by the sanctification of the Spirit. So this is something that, that is grounded in God and is made effective through the work of the Spirit. Right? The Spirit is the means for the spiritual formation, right? for, their, for their living into their chosenness uh, that, that, first, that the author of 1 Peter is driving for here, right? So those are important to keep in mind. And then what's the end goal? Why were they chosen? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, we're told. And this is one maybe we can unpack some, right? I don't think that one's maybe as clear. What, what do you mean intended for obedience to Jesus Christ? In what way? Is there some command Jesus gave us that we're supposed to obey? And what about this sprinkling with his blood? Well, that's, that's the purpose? We're intended for this, to be sprinkled with his blood? Right? I think the sprinkling part could be understood in, in a couple different ways. It could mean that we're, we're, we're intended for, right, uh, maybe, maybe it's a, a washing idea, right? That we're washed with the blood of Jesus. It's sprinkled on us, right? That's one way. But if that's the case, that's not really the end goal, right? In, in some ways, that's the means. That's how we're being saved. Right? I, I think it might actually be referring to something else, right? And, and the obedience to Jesus Christ, um, uh, again, maybe, maybe there's a command that's in mind here, something like, love one another as I have loved you. That's the new command that Jesus gives in John. Right? But I think what we get in First Peter is actually much more of an emphasis on the pattern of Jesus. Who, who was he? What, what, what kind of shape did his life take? Right? And I think obedience to Jesus means a, 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 a living into that pattern, being formed into the pattern, so that my life in some way takes on the shape of Jesus' life. That the, the way I move through the world somehow imitates the way that Jesus moved through the world. Right? And that might be with the obedience to Jesus. That's the, that's the end goal, right? That's the purpose. Right? So that, and, and that's grounded in what God has already done. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take effect through the work of the Spirit. Right? But the end goal is that I would more and more look like the pattern of Christ in the way I live my life. And in this world, right, the brokenness that we live in, the more and more... I release my grip on the things I cling to and live a life of self-emptying love and vulnerability toward others, then, yeah, uh, probably the more suffering I'm going to experience. 
I think that might be what the sprinkling with his blood means, right? To live, to, to actually be obedient to that pattern is probably going to mean some suffering, right? Just because of the brokenness that we live in, right? So, so again, so God has done something through his spirit to, to bring us more and more into a pattern uh, that will likely mean suffering if we really are going to live more and more into that pattern. I think that's part of what uh, is going on here with the the, uh, the, the end goals of spiritual formation in First Peter. So my question always, right, is, all right, well, how, how does that happen? We've got this language about by means of the Holy Spirit, but I, I, I want to become more and more like the pattern of Christ. I want, I want more and more to let go of the things that I cling to and live in faith, right, and openness and self-emptying, right, the kind of ways that, that, that Jesus lived. But how do I do that? Right, what does it look like? I think First Peter, uh, the, uh, Peter here is, is trying to encourage that growth in his audience and so we might ask what, what kind of things does he do right how does he imagine that they're going to that they're going to grow and change in, in, toward that end and one of the places I want to look with some detail is in at the end of chapter one and the beginning of, of chapter two and I've got this there's a a phrase up there, right, that is uh, uh, taken from the Greek and written in English letters. But I've done that because the translation is one of the issues here that I think we need to pay attention to. Right? The word there, is logokon gala, right, is translated in most translations as spiritual milk. Right? Gala is the milk. That's the second word, right? Logokon here being translated as spiritual um, that's a fine translation, but I think it obscures something that's going on here, right? Logokon, uh, as you may or may not recognize, right, has in it the word logos, or word. And I think that's very intentional, right? And if we miss that resonance in this word, right, we might miss some other connections that the author's wanting to make across this section, right? First Peter 1, 17 to, to, 20, to, to 2, 3. So let's, let's look, let's start in verse 17 of chapter 1. kind of read through here as the author is, is talking about how formation is going to take place. And one of the things I think we'll see here is that the author is using two different parental metaphors to talk about how God is going to enable the growth of his children, right, as a father and as a mother. Right, it's going to enable the growth of his children. So we, we pick up in, in verse 17. If you invoke the father as the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during your time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the age for your sake. Through him you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew. Right, there's, some, there's some transformation language, spiritual transformation language. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Right, so, the, so the author's using this language of the word of God right, as a kind of metaphorical seed that generates new birth. Right? This is a parental metaphor right? that the author is using here, that they are uh, being born again. Right? Uh, and as, let me, I'm going to come back to this one. 
The Word is a living, enduring seed, right? the Word of God, that is generating new birth, right? giving them new birth. So we have this, it's, it's, a, it's, God, it's a God as Father, right? A Father beget, begetting children. Right? And, and how, right? What is the seed that brings this new birth from the Father? It's this Word of God. And what is the Word? We're told. Right? The Word is the good news that was preached to you. Right? So this idea that, that the good news is the Word of God that acts as this seed that generates new birth. How does spiritual formation happen? It's to have the Word proclaimed to you, to hear the good news. Now, what does the author have in mind right, when he's talking about this good news? Uh, I think sometimes, because of our, the way we use language, we hear Word of God, and we immediately jump to Bible. Right? Uh, and so we might think, all right, what he's saying here, we should read our Bibles more, right? And that'll generate new birth. That's a good thing, right? <laughs> we should read our Bibles more. I think that would, that would, that would, that would certainly help us in our, in our aim to grow more into the image of Jesus. But I don't think that's what he has in mind here. That's not what he's talking about with the Word of God, right? The Word of God instead is this, this proclamation of the good news, right? And what is the good news? Jesus lived, died, and was raised Right? It's this, this pattern of self-emptying death followed by resurrection. That's the story. That's the pattern. Right? And the proclamation of that pattern, right? the hearing of that pattern, the being presented with that picture, that story of who Jesus is, generates life. That's the Word of God that can get into a person and transform them. Right? And I think we, we know that to be true. Right? Not in a kind of magical way, though certainly I think the Spirit can be at work in ways that we don't understand, but to have that story presented, it begins, if we hear it enough times, and we see that story enough times, and hear it enough times, it begins to shape our imagination in profound ways. So all of a sudden I can imagine myself moving through the world in a way I never had imagined before. I emptied myself in love for others? Sounds almost impossible. Maybe I'd never even think of doing that on my own, but to hear that story presented over and over again, that can start to burrow its way in, right, to my heart, burrow its way in imagination and begin to generate life, right, begin to generate transformation. I think that's the imagery that we're getting here of the seed, right, that's implanted and generates life in a person, right? And it's then carried forward into the the next metaphor at the beginning of chapter 2, right? So what is this word? it's, It's the good news that was announced to you. Then we're told, right, rid yourselves, therefore, of malice, guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. And then, like newborn infants, we've we've shifted metaphor slightly here, right? Long for pure logokon gala, pure spiritual milk. Now, again, this is why I think it's important for us to keep that, that's why I put it up here, right? Because I think logokon is meant to evoke for us word that that we just heard about at the end of chapter 1. Right, what is the milk that, that we're supposed to crave like newborn infants? I think it's the Word of God. Right, and again, the Bible's good, right? Read your Bibles. But by Word of God, I think what the author is, what Peter is telling him, what you should be craving is, is to hear the story of Jesus, to see the story of Jesus over and over again. Like, like a baby craving milk. Because it's going to nourish you to hear that story over and over again. It's going to grow you into salvation, is a language that 
Peter uses here. Again, we've got to keep in mind, there's two salvations. He's writing to people who have been initiated into the community. They have been saved in one sense, but there's a salvation waiting for them at the age to come. There's a salvation waiting when Jesus comes again. And what, how are they going to grow into that salvation? They're going to be nourished on the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. They're going to be nourished on the story of, 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 a, of a man who lived by emptying himself completely and love for those around him. It's the, it's, the, it's the picture we get in Philippians, right? If I could bring in some Philippians here, right? We're, we're in First Peter. But in chapter 2, that's the picture that Paul paints us of Jesus. That's the pattern he gives there to the Philippians. Right? Have the same mind, he tells them, as Christ, who, because he was in the image of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's the pattern of Christ. That's the, that's, the, that's the gospel. That's the story, right? And we need, to, we need to be nourished on that story. It's not enough to hear it once, right? We've got to hear it over and over and over again for, us to, for, for it to do its work, for it to start to dismantle the other stories that we live by. So it's the only story left that controls how we move throughout the world and how we imagine how we can live. I think that's what the author's after when he's thinking about spiritual formation for them, right? We need to, be, we need to, we need to crave this story, right? This, this seed that has been planted in us that's going to bring new, new life. We need to crave that so it can nourish us into salvation. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the Logocone Gala. So then I think the question for us, right, as we're trying to think through this is how can we do that? Right? How where can we encounter that story? Right? How, how, can we, how can we experience it? How can we, how can we uh, feast on that story right? so that it can nourish us in certain ways? And, and there's ways that Peter, we've covered this. There's ways that Peter does this in his letter. Right? So we can use those as, as some examples and then maybe think for ourselves what are some ways. Right? One of the things that he does right, is that he repeatedly presents them with this pattern, with this story in order to nourish them into formation, right? In order to nourish them into salvation, right? To nourish them toward this end where they begin to take on this pattern in their own lives. And, and he presents them with the story in a lot of different ways, right? Sometimes he just tells it to them, right? You get some powerful expressions of the pattern of Christ's life in First Peter, right? So at the end of chapter two, as he's speaking directly to the slaves, I think in some ways he's also speaking to the whole, whole audience as he presents to them, right, the pattern of Christ, Right, this idea, he, he committed no sin. Right, now there was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. Right, when, he, when, he, you know, when he was threatened, or when he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Right? Trusting faith in God, emptying himself, continued to do that. Right? that we, get, we get the story of Jesus told, right, of, of his body on the tree uh, in love for, for, for us. So he's that there the place in chapter 3 where he comes back again and tells the story of, of Christ, this time emphasizing more the resurrection as part of that, the pattern. Right? The first one really emphasizes the crucifixion. When he comes back and retells the story of Jesus again later, he can emphasize the resurrection. But that's, that's the pattern. Right? Self-emptying that is an exaltation. That's the pattern that we're meant to, to live into. So he'll just tell them that story, and that's something wouldn't hurt for us to do as much as we can. Right? Just tell that story, hear that story, present that story. But there's other ways 
that we can encounter this pattern in ways that would nourish us and transform us and, and shape our imaginations. And Peter does this in some other ways. Right? One of the things he does is he shows how this pattern, right, the word here, is echoed in Scripture. So he goes back and, and, he, and, he, and he shows how passages from Isaiah or passages from, passages from the Psalms show this same pattern. One of the places he does this I've got marked here in chapter 2 is when he talks about the living stone that was rejected by men right, but chosen and precious in God's sight. That's that same pattern. Right, a stone that was cast aside by everybody else and yet right, chosen and exalted by God. So he goes back in Scripture and, and finds, hey, what do you know? This is who God has been all along. Right? Jesus revealed to us who God has always been. Now we can go back to those scriptures and we can find the pattern of Christ, right? the pattern of how God works in the world in other places. And attending to those things and calling attention to those things and reading them in these ways is, is another way that we can present ourselves with this pattern, that we can nourish ourselves with this, this story of who Jesus is, the story of who, who God is and how he works in the world. Okay? So going back and, and rereading Scripture through this lens is one thing that, that Peter does. Right? The other thing is that he, he, he points to other people. Right? Tomorrow morning, we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time thinking about why we get so much attention on the slaves and the wives okay, in First Peter. But he spends a lot of time speaking directly to slaves and to wives. And I think part of what he's doing, he's speaking to them, but part of what he's doing is he's elevating them as examples for the whole community. You want to see what it looks like. You want to see what the pattern of Christ looks like in somebody's life? Look at a slave who suffers unjustly while continuing to do good. Right? Look, at, look at this wife who is, who is submitting herself uh, to, to another person, right? doing, doing good. These people, the slaves, the wives, are themselves instantiations of the pattern of Christ. We can look at them and nourish ourselves with the story of who Jesus is. And so not only does he find this pattern in the Christ event itself and echoed in Scripture, but he also finds it in the lives of people within his community, and he calls the community's attention to them. Again, I think a way, as a way of nourishing them with that story. Right? One other place where we can see it and encounter it and be shaped by it. And the elders, are, I would say, are included in this as well. Right? The elders are told, right? the elders are addressed toward the end, of the book, and they're told to live in such a way that they Im- embody the pattern of Christ, the chief shepherd. Right? As shepherds, they're supposed to look like the chief shepherd, not domineering over those in their charge, but being an example to them. Right? So again, we can find this pattern lived out in people's lives. And it's really important that you make this move, right? because if, if I tell you imitate Jesus, I think we all get on board, yay, right? that's a good thing to do. But then the other question may be like, but how? What would that look like? I, I can tell the Jesus story. I can talk about what he did on the cross. I can talk about his resurrection, right, that God raised him from the dead after that. But I, I don't think that's going to happen to me. Right? So how, how can I imitate that pattern? Well, one way to help me shape my imagination so I can begin to see how it, the pattern of Christ might look in my life is to show me what it looks like in somebody else's life. That pattern looks this way in that person's life. That pattern looks this way in that person's life. That pattern looks this way in this person. And, and over time, I begin to see, oh, now I can start to imagine some ways that that might look in my life. Right? What might it look for, like for me as a professor at a university to live in a self-emptying, self-giving way in love towards others? It's going to look different than it looks for you, probably. Right? But if 
I can see how you do it. I can see how someone, you know, if we can present those, those, those different examples, right, then right, we can, we can begin to shape our imagination so we can see what it would look like to live into that pattern ourselves. Right? And so those are some ways that, that, uh, that Peter does it, right? And I think that's something we can ask ourselves, right? If, this is, if Peter really believes right, that he's going to nourish people into salvation, he's going to grow them into salvation by presenting them with this story, right, by nourishing them with this story, how can we be doing the same kinds of things to encourage our own formation as a community, right? To encourage us to grow into salvation, to grow into lives that look like Jesus. Right? A lot of the things he does, we can do. Right? Tell the story. H- highlight where we see that pattern in, in Scripture. Right? Notice when someone's life takes on that pattern and call attention to it. Right, and tell the story of their life in such a way that it, that it makes it obvious, right? That what they're doing is living out the pattern of self-emptying love that we see in, in Christ on the cross. I might add to some other things, too, that First Peter doesn't talk about that are opportunities for us to be nourished with this story. Right, one of the things that Peter doesn't talk about, and you might find other Christian writers talking about, are some of the practices that we regularly participate in. Things like communion. I don't know that we always highlight this, and so maybe it could be a missed opportunity, but when we share communion, we are being presented with the pattern of a crucified Messiah. That story is being presented to us every time we take communion, and we can be nourished by that story in a way that shapes our imaginations. Baptism. Anytime we see a baptism, we are seeing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I don't know that we always highlight that. See, I think part of what, the, part of what this requires is some intentionality on our part. Right, to make sure we don't miss it when that pattern is being presented to us. When we have a chance to see and be nourished by that story. Right, but every time we see a baptism, we see this story. Right? And there might be other things right, that you can think of. And so that, that would be one thing I would want to encourage you here at MacArthur Park to be thinking about is what are the ways we can make sure that we're hearing this story over and over again. How can we, like newborn infants, crave this pure spiritual milk that can grow us into salvation? And and to be creative and to be intentional in finding ways to to put that story before our eyes uh, over and over and over again as it transforms us and and changes us. I want to close with a prayer because what we're, we're talking about here is something that is the work of God. And I think we need to ask him to be doing this work here in this community. Father, we, we thank you for the beautiful words that you inspired through Peter that we're able to hear today and to think about. We thank you for the ways that they can encourage us, enliven our hearts, console us when we're hurting. And God, we are thankful for the sure hope that we have and the grace that you will bring us at the revelation of your Son. We pray that you sustain us as we move toward that. And not just sustain us in a kind of static way, we pray that you grow us toward that salvation. And we know that that's something, God, that we, through our power, do not bring about, but we depend on you and your Spirit. And so, God, we pray that your Spirit sanctify this community, that your Spirit grow this community into the image of your Son. In his name we pray, amen.